Hello, welcome to another episode of Friday Night Friday. I'm your host, Ian Austin, and we are fry on Friday nights because we like to fry on Friday nights, y'all. Anyway, in this week's episode, there's The Hangover. I'm reviewing the three episodes, the three episodes, movies in the Hangover series. I'm reviewing um, some other stuff. Uh, yeah, so there's lots to cover on this week's episode. So, you know, listen and enjoy. Okay, see you in a sec. So I can't remember whether I covered last night in Soho for this podcast, but um, to cut a long story short, I don't actually know what I have um, for this week yet. Um, I'm recording this before I record the intro, um, so the intro will probably explain everything that's on this week's episode, and you'll be like, that's cool, that's very cool. Um, and it'll sound like it strange, because you'll listen to that and it'll be a clear, concise sum-up of this week's content, and then you'll listen to this and be like, why is he talking like this? Why didn't he edit it out? Because I want you to know what making podcasts actually like. A lot of people would say it involves lots of um, planning effort. For me, it's like, no, it's like, I just I just do what I can and hope for the best. But anyway, on to last night in Soho. So, Edgar Wright is one of my favourite directors. Um, that isn't something which was always the case. I found some of his material wasn't quite resonant with me. But in the last few years, I've done about turn and realised that he is definitely the English version of Quentin Tarantino and by that means someone who actually makes really cool movies which are also really draped in cinema history and also stylish and awesome have good performances and are just basically fantastic now the only difference is um Edgar Wright isn't quite as successful in terms of his movies don't generate a public culture leap or a um giant box office or anything like that but in terms of making really cool cool as fuck movies he is up there with tarantino and last night so for me is an example of that because this is a cool fucking movie and it's a cool movie because of the incredible incredibly cool stuff that has like that dance sequence with matt smith and ante joined um Thomas Singh McKenzie is insanely cool. Like, yes, you can go on that the actual movie is a treat on how sexist the 60s were and today is, and how women were manipulated and gaslit and abused and forced into situations that went badly for them because of nature of times. And that's all true, but that doesn't change the fact that this sequence is exceptional in terms of how they did it. And not just the dancing, the scene where they're walking downstairs and like you can see the man Tomasin McKenzie in reflection and Ted Joy walking downstairs and it's actually achieved through no mirrors um, and using the twins from Harry Potter who were um, Ron Weasley's older brothers, um, which is just so insanely cool. And it's one of those things whereby like, you just watching, think like this is awesome. Like the the craft involved, but in the actual movie too. I really, really like Last Night in Soho, and I may have mentioned this form podcast, but I don't really give a shit. Um, I, I love Gallo movies. In fact, I love them so much. I've actually written one, um, which I'm hoping will be made at some point. It's one of those things whereby, like, I could make it, but I would rather see someone make it because. 
that's cool. You know, I'd rather see. I, I very much long to um to do that Tarantino thing he did with from Dust to Dawn, where he handed over some of his and just got to watch some of his make a cool fucking version of one of his scripts. I'd love that. That's my goal. Anyway, back to Last Night in Soho. So I'm a big. I love gallo movies. I'm trying to get more into them because I love the the aesthetics of horror. Just the way that different countries and different approaches can make the most interesting horror movies. And the more I watch of gallo movies, the more I realise that it's all about the, the style of them, for lack of a better term. Style and the very specific representations on screen of the most creative ways for the the cue sequences, even stuff like pieces. Where you'll be watching pieces and they'll have that insane, that generally brilliant scene with like reflections and the dim lighting and the way shadows form killer's face and the use of colours. And Gallo is really a representation for that. I think that's one of the things Last Night in Soho does so well, is it takes those elements, those Brian De Palma elements where he took from Dario Argento and brought to the American populace the um the idea of the gallows sort of aesthetic with the reds and blues and Edgar Wright does a real good job of that in this movie because he's taking it to England and using weaponizing the inherent sexism of 1960s England but also the sort of glamorous overtones of it where like you see the glamour but when you dig deeper, you see the monster underneath. And that's pretty fucking gallow to me. And I love Last Night in Soho for doing that. And for just generally being a damn good horror movie. And I think that's the thing. You have to view it as a horror movie. And with the tropes inherent. And if you view it as a horror movie. And in terms of the gallow elements. That element as well. You'll really enjoy it. I think the problem is, I'm sure I said this on the podcast already, but I, God damn, I love this movie. It's just everything about it. Just the more I watch it, the more I think, one, Terence Stamp is an insanely good actor even now because they're playing on your perceptions of him throughout last or throughout his entire career, actually, because he's playing a lot of Hollywood villains. So you automatically go, oh, yeah, he's got me. Spoilers. Who gives shit? You know, you just he has to be a villain. That's just how it works. Like, but it's a playing on perceptions. And same thing with um the landlady, um that Eloise um rents from. And just all these little things, all these brilliant little things. And I think that's one of the things I like better, where it's stuff stuff like you need to look closer and actually pay attention to moving or reward you. And Edgar Wright's really done great to off land recent years. I mean, I I find, like, Shaun of the Dead gets all praise because it's, it is very, very funny, and I do have soft a soft spot for it. But I'm, I actually kind of prefer some of his latest stuff because I think once he got away from working for Simon Pegg, like, he got branch out and go, okay, well, now what do I like? And the thing with Edgar Wright is he's a very cinematically orientated guy where... Much like Tarantino, a lot of Edgar Wright's stuff drips with, I watch this, I like this, I love that. I'm going to have that influence my work. To the point where I'd love for him to make something like an Evil Dead sort of horror, horror comedy. I suppose maybe he already has. Anyway, sorry, I'm rambling now. But I, last night in Soho, 
I guess you can call this like a, a re-review, a re-re-re-review, if you will, because I don't want to get shouted up with regular media guys, just for the nature of it being a cracking watch. And it is, it's a really, really good watch, and I definitely recommend it. If you haven't seen it, go see it again, because it got me eight minutes or so out of this week's podcast, so that's good. Yeah. Um, last Night in Soho, awesome movie. Um, that... Uh, sorry, I've just started a new job and I'm sort of I'm a bit round, to be honest. So maybe I'll come for a next segment. Okay, again, I don't know if I've covered Malignant already for this podcast or not, but Malignant is the 2021 movie by James Wong, the director of Saw, the original Saw, and Saw 2. Wait, no, no, just the original Saw. He wrote, he co-wrote first three Saw movies, but he only directed the first one. Um, Insidious. Um, so I've won The Conjuring. So, and, you know, he's quite a famous, and death, death Sentence, I think. So he's quite a famous and solid horror director. And he also made, um, <sighs> Farting Share 7 and Aquaman 1 and 2. So he made a fair bit of stuff. He's mainly predominantly a horror director, although he does other stuff. He's probably most famous for Batman, actually, which is kind of fascinating. But he's... So this was his return to horror after he made Aquaman. And this is a... How do you describe this movie? Um, It's kind of gloriously offensive because it's... Very much like split and glass, where it's like we're gonna take some we're gonna take some things which are part of the quintessential nightmarish human experience, um, in this case tumors and split personalities, and we're gonna make them horror movie villains. The essential twist of this movie isn't it our main female protagonist is being manipulated into horrible horrible murderous crimes and it's essentially try not to say too much spoil people but be honest the twist is the funniest part of the entire movie um so it's just it's it's dumb it's really really dumb and it's also very offensive but in some bizarre way that makes it quite entertaining because this really harks back to those ridiculous 80 slashes where they're just like looking for any anything to keep material going and after james one had done like saw movies with like the it's not torture porn but with torture porn and insidious with ghosts and conjuring with sort of demons this and classical conjuring more classical horror um, this is just trashy, schlocky 80s horror. Like, you can genuinely believe that Malignant would have been first one, like a 19 part horror franchise, because it's so hilariously over the top. And it's something where this movie really works best, bizarrely, in this day and age. Despite being very 80s in style, it works because there's not a lot of stuff out there like it, and the gore and the absurdly offensive nature of material and the creativity shown. It goes against most horror movies because horror kind of 
do you think this one is actually fascinating in that regard? Because it feels like he starts the trends. Like with Saw, he started the quote-unquote torture porn phase. With Insidious and Conjuring, he started moving towards more classical sort of ghost stories and demon stories. And with this, he's like, he started the move back towards schlocky 80s-style ones. Because after this, you got like Evil Dead Rise, you got... um. The Scream movies re came back in fruition, so and lots of re violent horrors. And okay, now post talk to me, things are going in different direction again, but it's definitely a vibe where James Wang seems to see where the zeitgeist is going and react accordingly. And he's also a really, really, really good director. Now, is the script for this great? No, not particularly, if I'm being honest. I think that's. James Wan's own down point. When he's working with Lei Wonnell, um, those two were an incredible team together, but now Lei is off doing his own writing and directing, and he's really, really fucking good at it. Um, and James Wan is off doing his directing, which he's really fucking good at. Scripts, not quite so much, but then again, the way he maneuvers the camera and maneuvers the acting and the way he tells stories is so cool. Yeah, you sort of shrug off. And it's sort of similar to Last Night in Soho, because this has a lot of elements which are similar um, in terms of the lighting and colour of the um, Giala sort of aesthetic, although this one definitely goes into more action in the areas at points. Um, it's got some incredible choreography. You know, whoever that actress was who's playing the main character, she is... <sighs> She's very gifted at contorting and manipulating her body and going into different dimensions with that. And it creates a cool aesthetic, even if it's, again, as mentioned, ad nausea, uh, very offensive. But it's a good, competently made horror movie. And it definitely hearts back. And I wish there were more. I mean, it's like, you know, it's stupid, but it's fun and it's creative. And, okay, parts of it are a bit ludicrous and... It might go a bit over the top and it's as subtle as a rock, but you don't always need to be subtle when make horror. And you really do get a sense James Wang loves the um, horror genre and he loves material and he loves making these sort of movies in between like the big Atman ones. He's like, hey, you know, I made this big studio movie for you. Can we make this weird as fuck, a slightly offensive horror movie? It might set a new franchise. And they're like, yeah, go for it. And this didn't quite work out yet, um, as well as The Conjuring, which is a franchise machine, or Insidious, which the last Insidious movie of Patrick Wisdom directing was very good. No, this hasn't quite... But I think it might. I think it will definitely be... Cult Classic's the wrong word, because I think it did okay when it came out. But I think as time goes on, people get more and more into it which I'm hopeful for because I, I like horror franchises and I think we need, we if they're not going to make like Friday 13 for Hellraiser or anything like that, um, then bring those back. You know, not as like a trilogy or anything, just as an ongoing thing where it's like, hey, let's get this directors on the up and up. Let's just see what they can do with Malignant, with Malignant sequel. And okay, it might get a bit weird, but I mean, this movie is pretty fucking weird too. So there you go, weird. Weird, 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 weird. So this isn't going to be long. This is basically me um, talking about um, 
I watched Thanksgiving last week and I talked about how much I enjoyed Grindhouse. So I thought I'd go back and watch Planet Terror. I was actually going to watch Grindhouse, the whole thing, back back because I have this amazing, I don't know how I got it, amazing copy of both movies on DVD with the trailers. And I was browsing through it and I saw there's an opportunity to watch Planet Terror of an audience reaction track. So I did. And let me tell you guys... um, so, one, that audience sounded very, very high. I don't know where it's recorded, but they seem high as fuck. Um, but two, um, it was fantastic. And I don't know why more movies don't have that option. Sure, there were times when it was obnoxious, but, you know, especially for movies like that, where they didn't necessarily come over here to the same volume they were in America. You know, Weinstein Brothers are two of the worst actual marketers, talent and people Hollywood's ever had. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, so it was kind of like almost almost like seeing it with a crowd because they'll never release that version ever again with both versions, both movies back to back um, and with the trailers. Like, because why would they? Because they didn't make any money. But Planet Terror really holds up because I think... Death Proof, I need to rewatch. I am going to be rewatching actually for um and reviewing for this episode. But Death Proof, Planet Terror for me is just a a, per, a perfect zombie movie. It also works as like a grindhousey one because intentionally there's intentional bad acting, there's continuity errors, there's ridiculousness, there's bizarre dialogue, there's gratuitous like set stuff like really gratuitous but and but it's so funny and it's so great and it's so accurate to sort of spirit for those movies where it's like hey we can't get bruce willis for three days we can't get his big star for two days so we'll shoot everything we have of them in two days and we'll promote them as being a star movie but they're barely in it i mean the joke about bruce willis in this movie is like he could have literally been shot anywhere because he doesn't actually interact with any of the other actors. Now, he probably was on set, but it's a great joke. And it really... Okay, it's not so... The joke doesn't really hold up given he actually going through a lot of shit. Maybe not at this point, but later on, and he was literally doing two days' worth of work. But then again, he's doing it because he wanted his family to be okay financially. So, there you go. But Blank Terror just is so much fun. Like... I mean, I'd say it's such a shame that, like, um, Grindhouse didn't take off as a thing because I would love to have seen a version of Thanksgiving more like this. I mean, I'm grateful it's making money nowadays. And, you know, cool horror franchise, new horror franchise, like, Malignant obviously hasn't got that far yet, but Thanksgiving looks like it'll get there because it's got a good hold. Um, but, I mean, I still think Plant Terror is great. Like... Robert Rodriguez, I won't say it's sad what happened to him, but what I would say is that, like, at one point, he was, like, the shining beacon of making cool, aesthetically unique indie sort of pseudo-inter movies, and the Mexican fuelings on his work were so fantastic. And, I don't know, I mean, get older, things happen, but, like, I just love the, the iconography of... For example, this one for A. Rodriguez, his iconography, the the way he's 
The way Rob Rodriguez takes this guy who wasn't an action star, who was kind of a small guy, and makes him just a complete not badass. And the audience track really emphasizes that because people will lose their shit for him and Rose McGowan. You know, completely and utterly. He also lose their shit for Jeff Fahey and Michael Bean too. And, um, and uh, yeah, some of the other great actors in the movie, they lose their shit for them as well. Michael Parts, um, Ian McGraw, uh, Tarantino staple. They have a good laugh at Tarantino as well. Although the Everton Room is um, what came out later on about um, Harvey Weinstein and Rose McGowan. And that does make the movie a little uncomfortable to watch because um, apparently Rob Rodriguez cast her despite Harvey Weinstein. But then there's a scene in there with an attempted rape and it's like dude like did you not it's just does get a little uncomfortable at that point i mean you know in hindsight yeah that's pretty fucked up uh bizarrely fits the grindhouse aesthetic even more but yeah so that's the only downside of it although she is fantastic in the movie like rose mcgowan this and scream like, she should have been a movie star off Scream, to be honest. That's a terrific performance, but sounds like Hollywood fucked her over royally. Um, in a bright note, the trailers hold up. Don't is an amazing trailer. Like, seriously, I, I still think I make, I still think they should have, Edgar Wright should have tried to make that for mo- into a movie. Werewolf Woman of the SS? I really don't know why Rob Zombie didn't just go off and make that one. Like, just, why not? Like, just do it. Don't I think it, just do it. Um, And Machete, oh. The Machete move which came out was good, but that trailer is just, like, perfection. And Jeff Farr, he is amazing. Dear God, what a... He's a guy who gets the material completely nutly so um plant terror yeah really enjoyed it uncomfortable though it may be to watching parts it's still very 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 competently made zombie movie it's really funny it's really disgusting and it really feels like it encapsulates a period of time for Rodriguez and Tarantino where they were literally just doing stuff to amuse themselves and it didn't work and then they both went their separate ways unfortunately because God between this and between this and from dusk to dawn what a goddamn team those two were so just for um I do my planet terror um my death proof review even um I want to talk about Hancock which I watched um today um on tuesday um so hancock is a super movie starring will smith jason bateman and charlie Theron. it came out i think just before his super movie craze really took off with the um uh iron man and the dark knight right the dark knight and it was hancock's one of those fascinating movies where i think it was almost ahead of its time because it's a deconstruction of the superhero genre in two ways first half is a comedic deconstruction bit by playing with the tropes of what would superman be like if superman existed and was a drunk and didn't really give a shit about anything or anyone just did things for reasons and occasionally stop crimes, but it was sort of coincidental to just trying to 
goodbye, I guess. And it's about the reconstruction flowers in like, okay, well, how would you turn Sky into a hero in real ways? Would let's would Superman be a good guy? Or would he be a drunk who caused chaos? Would Lex Luthor be a bad guy or would he be a philanthropist um, trying to change the world? Um, and the first half of the movie is quite a amusing diversion to that. And then the second half changes completely because I'm going to spoil it because if you haven't seen Hancock by now, you probably are not going to or you might want to after this review. And second half movie is a deconstruction of what happens with the actual idea of immortality. It's like a, more of a drama than comedy. So it's a film of two halves, because in second half they obviously find out that he and Jason Bateman's wife, played by Charlie's Theron Mary, are immortal beings who, when they get close to each other and, I guess, experience happiness, they both lose their powers. And further they go away from each other, the more powers come back. So, for example, if you were to shoot one of them, while they're together, they would bleed. But then when they're apart, the blood would go away. The wound would go away, I guess. I I mean, you're dealing with fantastical characters in general, so you can't really overthink it, but that's the gist of it. So what Hancock does well is it's two very good movies. That's it. It's the first half is a good, very good comedic movie. Um, okay, it's not quite so funny now because we've seen it, we've experienced superhero genre and we've, experience the Deadpool style parody which is not not sharper but better jokes and the second half is just like a really pretty good drama I mean it's kind of ludicrous because it feels like the movie isn't quite sure what it wants to be whether it wants to be drama or comedy and it's jammed together it's like his actives thought we don't want to make comedy but we don't want to make complete drama we want to have Will Smith we want him to be funny and charming in parts you know, almost like they thought, Will Smith is super, that's a selling point, it's safe. And it kind of, I mean, it's it's a competently made movie. It's just, uh, the real truth is, the elements of movie which work are both elements, but they don't work together because it jarring, very jarring move from comedy to drama. And by, by that, I mean, like, the first half has dramatic elements but second half doesn't have comedic elements so it's it's a big shift and it also underscores fact that it feels like you could have picked either of these movies either of these halves and made the full movie out of it and would have been great um or you could have gone further with the fact that clearly clearly um Hancock is an XP for Superman Ray's and XP for Lex Luthor. And I don't feel they did enough with Ray. I, I always feel like this is very much like the Unbreakable, where we later would find out Unbreakable is actually the first act of a three-act superhero story. And this feels similar, because it does feel like, hey, we made this and we've set up a lot of things we can pair for later on, but they never got back to them, which is strange. I think Will Smith made some unique career choices as the two thousand as the two thousands went on, I think he thought I want the Oscar. He made some interesting career choices as a result and this is one of them, which I mean <clears throat> it's a good good movie. It still holds up the effects are incre incredible. The action's pretty good. Okay, villains are a bit forgetful, but that seems to be partly a deconstruction as well of the idea that you know 
sometimes super villains they just right place right time for what they do and i mean the only thing i would argue with is there's a giant like um plot hole in the idea that the normal villains with no hancock's weaknesses but then i have to assume if you're going to be that insane to shoot a guy who's immortal then you know you'll keep trying it. It's a bit like Superman Returns, where a guy's firing the frigging Gatling gun at Superman, and bullets are bounced off him, but he keeps firing. So it's all like, at some point, why not? Like, you know Superman... I mean, Hancock might actually kill you, but in general, Superman isn't going to kill you. So what... You just keep firing away. Worst you get is you'll go to jail. I mean, Hancock actually legitimately murders people in this movie, so that's kind of a bad analogy. But, but it's a good movie. It's very watchable. It's not a horror movie, so I don't really think it applies to Friday Night Fright. Um, but I don't give shit. It's my podcast, so I watched it and I enjoyed it. Okay, so let's do a brief bit on the Hangover series, the um, movies from the 2000s, and it starred Sat Gaffinakis, um um uh, bradley cooper ed something i can't remember his name off the top of my head and justin long it's weird now i can remember justin long but i can't remember the guy who's actually one of the main actors except from the fact that he was ed <laughs> <coughs> and it's then it's the um comedies about a bachelor party gone awry where at least first one is and second one kind of is and third one isn't and uh gross out comedies to an extent but they're directed by Todd Phillips and they look like a million dollars and think part of the reason for the success of these movies is that they look like movies they don't look like improfests I mean I I think Edgar Wright makes stylish comedies but some of the other guys like it's like they just put a camera down and they just go improvise and I think they forget that when you look back at the um for example, Woody Allen movies of the 70s. I know Woody Allen is a problematic guy, to say the least. But if you look back at his movies from the 70s, he knows how to use a camera. And it's maybe it's not much stylish thing, but there's some effort to create a visual aesthetic. Just putting camera down and saying improvise is not a visual aesthetic. It's lazy. I mean, you should want the movie to be visually interesting. That's the goal of making a movie. You know, make a radio show if you don't want the visuals to be interesting or want any visuals at all. And so I think that's one thing that set Top Phillips out is all like, this is a movie. It looks like a movie. It feels like a movie. It's shot in the most interesting way possible. I suppose you can say in some ways it's kind of flat, but in other ways it's sort of like you look at the quality of the footage, you look at the quality of the acting and writing, maybe not writing, but just the way the story's told. I mean, okay, second one. So here's the thing about Hangover movies. A long perspective has been that, firstly, they only want to make one, which is clear that they only want to make one because the way the first one ends. But second theory that always was possible was that the second movie was made almost under duress and they made a movie so revolting in love ways um, that they would never be given another movie. But then they were allowed to make a third movie, which has nothing in common with the other two movies and feels more like a drama at points, which is fascinating because it feels sort of like that whole concept, the writer and director revolted inside that they wanted to do something different. And you definitely see this sort of aesthetic for Todd Phillips being like, 
not happy that he was perceived as a comedy guy. I mean, obviously, he made Road Trip, and then he made uh, Starsking Hutch, and then made this. And then, but while he was making these movies, he made Due Date with Zap Gaffinakis and Rob Down Jr., which is not comedy by any stretch of imagination. It seems to be him being torn between being that comedic guy and making something more substance. And then, of course, he made Joker, where it is a non-comedy, I suppose, a dark comedy in set points, but mostly it's just a drama. Um, and that seems to be where his tension's going because he got praise and, I think, awards and effing and make billion dollars. And you can definitely see elements of that in Hangover 3 because he clearly did not want to make a comedy. And if he, I mean, if he did, he failed because it's not funny in slightest. Although, to be honest, none of the three movies are funny. And yet, I've rewatched them a lot. And the question is, why? Why have I rewatched them a lot? And the answer is, I don't really fucking know. I find... They're fascinating movies. I mean, the second is, is so problematic and so bizarrely over-the-top gross in so many ways. It feels determined to be like, you want me to make a sequel Hangover? Fine, here's a sequel set in Bangkok. Fuck you. Enjoy a movie. Or don't. I don't give a shit. It seems very defiant. In some ways, you can respect that because, I mean, that's you know, tr trying to make a statement. But in other ways, it's sort of like, dude, you you make Hangover. Like, you're not... You make starting Hutch. You're not going to make the statement. But then, with Joker's success, maybe he was going to make a statement. I don't know. But what I do know is the um, attempts to combine these movies into a trilogy, an epic trilogy, it, it, it does strike me at points where it's a piss take. No. You know, we're expected to believe that these this is all been building to this moment. And also a lot of a bachelor party, because in the first movie they're not hungover. I suppose you can say, Oh yeah, but it's the ramp it's the repercussions of the hangover. So it's like a, a metaphorical hangover, but that doesn't side me. It doesn't really work. But you have to give them credit that they tried something new. I mean, it's it's daring to make comedy and it's not even slightly trying to be funny. Um, and it's amazing that the studio thought after part two, hey, we'll give him another shot. It's sort of like, he was daring you not to screen like another Hangover movie and you did anyway. So he decided not make comedy and you decided to go with that. So in that regard, it's fascinating. It's all fascinating because these movies are problematic on so many levels um but still the course language in first one even like first movie so much has changed that it's just interesting to see each movie they're like doing slightly different things because realizing they can't get away with some things that were done in the original movie so, or in part two so they keep going and go further. And this one is actually pretty tame, part three. If you were to look at them as a chronological order and structure, part three is by far the tamest one, although there is a some disgusting stuff in there. But in general, it's much more toned down than part two. Like, Todd Phillips got really told off of part two. Inside, he's going to bring it back to kind of a PG-13 aesthetic. So yeah, I mean, like, but overall, I, I, they're fascinating rewatches. I don't know if I call any of them great. Um, first one 
it's kind of, the mystery's kind of intriguing. Um, but then at the end, it's sort of like undone. And I think also the fact that in all three movies, Dark has no characterization is very fucking lazy. And it's poor writing. Because Justin Long, it, he's an okay actor. No, I mean, like, Jiggly is not his fucking fault. That's no, that's not, any of the actors in Jiggly, it's not their fault that the movie is that terrible. That's on a broader spectrum than them. But I mean, Bradley Cooper became star of this. That Gavin Akers is actually fascinating, really, really, really fascinating how he is actually genuinely a much better actor than this movie. Have you put across? Because in this movie, while he does a good job being unlikable um, in his character, his character ultimately is too unlikable to even give much credit to the performance because it's almost too good. And I think that's one of the other things about this is the fact that there is no, none of these characters are likable. They're all awful, awful people. So it's sort of fascinating rewatching movies back with that mindset in mind and being like, how the fuck did people relate to him for these characters? They're all assholes. But if you want to see three movies about some assholes um, and their fucked up adventures, the hangover is for you. That's a wrap on this week's episode. I know some of you are going to say, what about Death Proof? What about Death Proof? What about Death Proof? Where's Death Proof? Where's your view of Death Proof? Um, uh, that'll be next week. But for now, bye.